I'm going to begin our time with just some of the, the details of the last weeks. This is not pleasant to hear, but at the same time, the point of our time together is we need to learn to be a body. I think we are a body. We continue to grow. When we, there is struggle, there is grief from someone in our church family that the instinct isn't to keep a distance but to run to them. Just so you'll know, so we can minister to these families going forward, kind of how things have unfolded over the last um, day or two. That way they will not need to relay this, these events to you. You can care for them in it. Um, uh, with Steve, there's not a lot of, of information, except he learned yesterday morning of the passing of his sister. Again, her name is Erica, 21 years old. <clears throat> we need to be in prayer for Steve as there's two ways I think he'll experience this, his own personal grief and sorrow at losing a sister, and then going home to see parents who have lost a daughter. And there is no grief or despair that matches losing a child. That is darkness unlike others. Um, and so we lift up Steve, his family, that he would have the ability to grieve and at the same time the ability to minister to mom and dad. <clears throat> For the Chittics, on Friday, received texts around 7 o'clock. Um, been kind of a long day for the baby, just hadn't slept real well, so like happens with all of us with children over and over again. As evening came, fed her, put her... Uh, to bed just like they had every night, um, laid her down, <clears throat> she went to sleep, went in an uh, hour or so later and there was obviously something not right with little Sloan, unresponsive, uh, called the EMT, headed to the hospital and she um, had probably passed away there uh, while laying in bed sleeping. Um, they. With a little one, they do an autopsy, no matter what, to kind of see what took place. They did that, and uh, cause was determined that it was SIDS, sudden infant death syndrome. Um, <clears throat> it just the way I describe it is just something in the brain triggers and or misfires, and the child stops breathing. Um, nothing. If they had been laying right beside her or finding her a few minutes later, either way, the doctor said the outcome is the same. Um, <clears throat> we got to spend some time with them, and as you would imagine, it's dark, dark despair. Uh, it's real sorrow and sadness. They need to be surrounded and loved, cared for, prayed for. I was talking with my wife, and you can sort of, you can understand it a bit when you think maybe a child, if you have children or a spouse, you have a spouse, and you put yourself in their place and imagine it, and you, you can't even let yourself imagine it more than a second or two before it comes so uncomfortable and gut-wrenching that you have to turn your mind away from it. And that's where they are right now. I saw Jesse and Adam, um, the two brothers, are here this morning. Um, 
obviously you can imagine that adds another layer of angst and difficulty as especially Adam he just turned four as he has some perspective of it but obviously not a real perspective of as a four-year-old and the confusion and sadness there and what that does to the parents to see that for Julie her mom is uh, battling cancer not a great outlook for her mother on that not giving a lot of hope really for the year um, so you have that weight as well. Her mom will have uh, chemotherapy treatment on Monday morning in Washington, D.C., where they live, and then they'll be coming down. Um, so just a lot mounting up on them. And, you know, they lost their baby. And so <clears throat> this morning my hope and my challenge that I hope we can do is walk through Psalm 42 and Psalm 43 and do two things. First, to better equip us to care for and love those in the midst of deep grief. There has been other things at our church in the past. There have been parents that have been lost in tragic ways. There have been uh, situations, a lot happening uh, at different points where sorrow and grief is real. How do we walk through that with somebody? What is the call? And then secondly, I want to equip us or or at least give us a foundation that when we face this sort of suffering and this sort of pain and this sort of trial at some point in our life, how are we equipped to think through it, to walk through it, to know our God in the midst of it? The Psalms are a beautiful place to go because in the Psalms, the psalmists aren't, they're not holding back as they write. They're not just giving you that, okay, here's what you probably want to hear, and so that's what I'm going to tell you. There is real and raw emotion that comes forward in the psalms as the psalmist would speak. It's a, an unedited version of their thinking. There is real passion there, there is real struggle that comes through. You'll find them saying things that are unbiblical. <laughs> you know, like, God's rejected me. God doesn't care about me anymore. And yet that's kind of the true emotional feel of it for the human experience, for the psalm. And yet, at the same time, there is these just altogether amazing cries out of, of, of joy and belief and hope and faith in a God in the midst of the struggle. And so it's how then do we come at it? Sometimes in church it's easier to paint this like facade of happiness. And our liturgy becomes, you know, get a smile on your face. I'm so happy and here's the reason why Jesus took my burdens all away. You know, and, and there's this sort of lighthearted giddiness about worship. And it just is shallow. It, it doesn't run deep. I'm not saying there's not joy and there's not songs that you just want to dance to and sing to and, and go all out. I'm not, I'm not 
talking about not having joy, but I'm talking about sort of a light happiness where then when someone has deep struggle and sorrow, they feel like, well, to enter the church, I've got to kind of paint this facade of happiness, and I'm lighthearted in here, and I'll get through my hour and a half, and then I'll go back and be sad. And not realize it's a collection of believers. Some coming, as that song we often sing, who have come rejoicing, telling of battles won, victory in their corners. Others who have been weeping through the night, didn't want to wake up, struggling in their hearts to come. And that's the kind of congregation that comes. And we want the word to go forward. We want to be a body that is able to receive that. And there is a depth and there is a truth that doesn't say, no, I just paint over and pretend like it's not sad. Or I, you know, I just say a simple like, well, God is love. And expect like, now grief is gone because I've, I've made a statement about Jesus but that we connect these two together. To ignore it, to paint over it, that is when sadness and grief turns into depression, turns into apathy, turns into apostasy. Because you coat over it like somehow the Lord is only able to help you if you're happy when you come see Him. Instead of the Lord being the Lord of the brokenhearted, caring for those who are downcast in spirit. The situation here in Psalm 42 and 43, I think is what we would say is the psalmist has a divided heart. In Psalm 86, 11, you you hear the psalmist cry out, God, deliver me, I fear you. And he cries out, unite my heart. Unite my heart. What does it mean to have a divided heart? I'm not talking about something sinful necessarily, something hypocritical where you have a double allegiance. I'm talking about a a divided heart in this way. If you look at chapter 42 of Psalm, verses 8 and 9, listen to what the psalmist says. It says, By day the Lord commands his steadfast love, and at night his song is with me, a prayer to the God of my life. Verse 9, I say to God, my rock, you have forgotten me. Why do I go mourning? Because of the oppression of the enemy. Turn over to chapter 43 and verse 2. It says, for you are the God in whom I take refuge. Why have you rejected me? Why do I go about mourning because of the oppression of the enemy? It's this divided heart where I know this is true. You are my refuge. You are my rock. You are my high tower. You are the one who I run to. And let me tell you exactly how I feel. God has forgotten me. God has rejected me. He's left me crying in the night and I wake up in the morning alone. That's that divided heart of hopelessness and hope. And I think when the psalmist is saying, unite my heart, allow these things to merge in my heart. The grief, the pain that I feel, along with the hope and the love that comes from God and Him alone, help these two unite my heart that truth reigns even in the deepest distress and in the deepest sorrow. You've experienced that, haven't you? Maybe not in deep, deep sorrow and grief like these families who we're praying for and thinking about this morning, but it could be something even in just a career or a job, any sort of providence that's in your life where you say in one hand, 
God is sovereign. He wants what is good for me. He wants what is best. He knows my weaknesses and my strength and is, is leading me along a plan that is perfect. And yet, on the other hand, you say, why does nothing I want happen? Why does God keep putting me in these backward situations? Why is everything disappointing in my life? The, the cry and the prayers unite my heart. Help, help the providence in my life that feels so confusing and disappointing merge with the hope and the trust and the faith that I have in the sovereignty of God. Not that difficulty disappears, but then you find hope and joy and purpose and meaning in the midst of sometimes confusing, sometimes difficult situations. So I want this to speak to us and encourage us in how we approach the Chittix, how we approach Steve and surround them during this time, and then encourage us in our own heart, whether your suffering is just you know, right under the surface or it's deep, difficult times that you're walking through. I will warn you that the psalm has like a semi-happy ending. It's, but it's not like... You know, they walk off into the sunset, living happily ever after, all their questions answered. That's not life. That's not life in this age is passing away. That is the promise of the age to come. The beatific vision, as we talked about a couple weeks, to stand before our God and to see him face to face, to be counted worthy, to know no sorrow, no fear, sin have no reign, pure joy. That's the reality. That's the reality in the age to come. That is our hope. That is what Sloan, Erica experience now in the presence of their Lord. But how in this age passing away do we walk through these things? First, let's just look at the experience of the psalmist. And then we'll look at just four things. And then we'll take a moment of prayer. The experience of the psalmist, he's facing opposition. He's facing an enemy. Something's coming up, standing in the way of his plan, of his happiness, of his success. And it is turned from outward experience, outward disappointment, to internal anguish, to internal despair, to, to depression, to doubt, to fear, to anxiety. It's turned into all of those things. These, these outward experiences that he's having have turned inward. Look at chapter 42, just a couple verses to kind of highlight this. Chapter 42 and verse 7. Deep calls to deep at the roar of your waterfalls. All your breakers and your waves have gone over me. He's drowning here. Verses 9 and 10, I say to God, my rock, why have you forgotten me? Why do I go mourning because of the oppression of my enemy? As with, deadly, as with a deadly wound in my bones, my adversaries taunt me. While they say to me all the day long, where is your God? They see obviously things are going bad to you. It's prompting this question. Where's your God now? Is he delivering you? It's a situation that is bad and it's turning to internal anguish. One more verse, 43, verse 2. For you are God in whom I take refuge, but why have you rejected me? Why do I go about mourning because of the oppression of my enemy? And then you see it turns to then turning and asking God, why? What is this? Why am I experiencing this? 
I'd say two things. In one sense, to ask God why is always the wrong question because what right does the potter or what right does the clay have to demand an answer from the potter? And yet, at the same time, in times of suffering, why is a totally appropriate question? Typically, there's a partial answer to why. We can give some theological answer to why. Often it is incomplete. Almost always it's insufficient. If you knew exactly why, it doesn't mean you feel better. Sometimes that why is asked. You know some of the answers. The ultimate answers don't come until the age to come. But it turns to that question, why? And again, you know that's not necessarily the wrong question to ask, to turn to God and ask why. I want to just pause here and just first thank our church family and then encourage us how we can maybe think together about reaching out. Steve, I think especially just the Chittix who live here and we'll be in contact with. First of all, this weekend was a display of kingdom humility and love for one another in the body. As your pastor, you know, it's not like an old man here, I was proud of our church family. I rejoice and give thanks to the Lord. There are already multiple service things taking place over the weekend of displaying love and service and humility one to another. And then in the midst of it, up pops just these dark, tragic events. And to see people respond in love in care, I'm so thankful to the Lord for that. But encourage us then how, how we continue to do so. Some of these things you know. I'm not trying to treat you like you're dumb. Just encourage us to be united in the way we go about it. When the question why comes, when you are around these people and the question why comes, don't feel like you need to or have the answer for why. Job, in chapter 6, verse 26, you know the story of Job. He's gone through difficult, terrible, hard things. His friends come. For several days, they're quiet, and they sit around him and pray, and then they start talking. And when they start talking, that's when it gets bad. That's typically how it works. But Job responds to his friends with this. He says, do you think that you can reprove words when the speech of a despairing man is wind. In other words, like, please don't jump on my word. Don't correct my theology right now. Don't say it's a misdirected question. In a despairing man, his, his words are like wind. They're not thought out. They're not completed. He, he could get the answer right on a quiz if you gave it to him, but they're like wind. They're, they're cried out in grief and they're carried away. I encourage you in your approach, don't feel an impulse to, to need to correct or to need to always push back on a theological wind words that are thrown out. The wind carries them away. When a season comes that the Lord is able to, to allow them to think through things, they'll get it right. With suffering, you just, every, in, in some way, just whatever the impulse is, do the opposite. 
When there's difficult suffering, the impulse is, I don't really want to get that close. And the need is, you, you need to run to it. It's not comfortable. It's not pleasant. It's not enjoyable. But you need to do it. You need to be there. For the Chittics especially, their expression, their hope, sometimes you are uncertain. Do people want some space? Is it better from there? They want people with them through this. If you feel prompted by a spirit of, I should call Julie, I should call Andrew, don't second guess yourself, do it. You may just cry with them for five minutes and that's it, but, but do it. You know, if you think, I'd like to go spend an hour with them, but I don't know, call them. If it works, go do it. When you're sitting there, the next impulse, when it's silent, you want to talk. <laughs> Sometimes just being there with them in the silence is what is needed. Read a psalm, pray, turn hearts and minds towards the Lord, but don't feel like, I've got to answer the question, I've got to fill the silence. And that's difficult again, because now we're just all sitting in grief. You've got to give yourself to that. Be there with them. Give yourself to be there with them. If you're sitting there and they need to be gone for 45 minutes on their own, when they walk back in the room and you're sitting there, you don't realize the ministry and the comfort that that is. They don't want to walk this path alone. and We don't want them to walk this path alone. Thirdly, I... I you will know this, but we don't have the right to manage or judge the way they grieve. I think we all will grieve a little differently. We compartmentalize, and sometimes it can be frustrating when you see someone else. Like maybe they, they just want to get busy, and they want to just jump into other things. And our impulse would be like, no, you need to take time. You need to have your meltdown. You need to. Others just become completely unable to function for a while. And maybe you feel like, okay, it, it's been long enough. It's time. We don't have the right to manage someone's grief. So again, where they are, surround them where they are. Encourage them as you can. Offer words that are going to be encouraging. But don't feel like it's on you to answer the questions and make it less sorrowful than it is. Sometimes just being there in the sorrow is what is needed. And this one, I think, is especially true when a child is lost. I have a sister who passed away, oh, 14 years ago now. She was actually 20 when she passed away. And I remember not so much my own experience with it, but I re watching my parents walk through it and then being there for another 14 years since. What feels like it's going to be hurtful to say Sloan's name to talk about Sloan, that precious baby. That will bring tears. It will bring emotions. But typically, when a parent loses a child, they just want other people to not forget that child. They want to hear you say that name. Even if it causes them to cry, they, they want to hear you talk about it. You know, it's not like if they can, you know, they're going to be over it in 10 days. So let's, you know, 
they're never going to be over it in some senses. The Lord brings healing and changes the way that we are able to respond to it. But I would say be bold in even talking about Sloan, talking about Erica, however it might be. Again, you'll understand the situation. You'll, I don't want to treat you like dummies, not like you're always opening wounds. But I know from my mom, I know from seeing it, it's painful, and yet that is healing and that is precious when someone is willing to kind of walk into the uncomfortable space with you and to rehearse how beautiful your little girl was. To rehearse what a joy it is that she is in the presence of the Lord around the throne singing, Worthy is the Lamb who was slain. Finally, picking back up with the psalmist, we see that he's not giving up. He's not rejecting what he knows to be true, but he is fighting for that unified heart. He's fighting to feel God. And so just four things, and I'll cover these in ten minutes, and we'll be taking a moment for prayer. But first, and again, I would say this specifically for Steve, for the Chittics, and for yourself as you walk through these things. Pray for light and truth. Pray that Andrew and Julie will, ha- will know it, will have glimpses of it, will see it. Pray for that in your own heart, in your own life. Chapter 43 and verse 3, the, the psalmist says, Send out your light and your truth. Let them lead me. Let them bring me to your holy hill and to your dwelling. It's this fighting to feel God in the midst of the darkness. I need the Lord. Let me not walk by my own perception that I know is twisted. I know is fallen. I know can't see clearly now. I need light and I need truth to to grab hold of, to lay hold of, to lead me down this unthinkable path. I, I need light and I need truth. I need your word. That should be our pursuit, our prayer for ourselves, our prayer for them in these moments, hearts that are directed by truth. Ephesians 1.18, may the eyes of your heart be enlightened in order that you may know what is the hope to which you have called. Number two, preach to your own soul. Psalmists often do that. In Psalm, I think of Psalm 103. He begins that way. Oh, my soul, magnify the Lord. You, you hear often the psalmist calling their hearts to worship. That's an experience because we don't always wake up feeling like that. We don't always, we know the truth, but again, we have that divided heart. And in the divided heart, you need to preach truth to yourself. Not lay hold of the confusion and your own sort of manipulated wrong thinking that it's confused, but know truth and preach it to yourself. Let the truth unite that divided heart. He preaches truth to himself. Chapter 43, verse 5. Why are you cast down on my soul and why are you in turmoil within me? Hope in God. And you see just this longing hope. I don't know when it will be, but I will again praise you, my salvation and my God. Back in chapter 42, the same thing in verse 5. Why are you cast down, O my soul? Why are you in turmoil? Hope in God. And then in verse 11, again, the same thing. 
He's preaching. And he's preaching these things that God is our hope. He is our hope even when it feels hopeless. He is our salvation. And He is sovereign. He does not cease to be sovereign in that flood that feels overwhelming. He is faithful. In a heart that is divided, God is not. His heart is not divided. He is faithful. So you preach your own soul. Thirdly, go after God in worship. Go hard after God in worship. We've encouraged the body this way a lot of times. Is that sometimes when you walk in on Sunday morning, you don't feel like worshiping. And it can you have this sense of like hypocrisy almost, like, I know my heart is not like where it should be right now. I haven't had a great week. I'm really prayed or looked at my the words since last Sunday, and I come in. And you feel like almost it's more honoring to God if I'm not going to stand up and sing and act like everything's okay. If I know that's the work of Satan. Boldly I approach the throne with a heart confessing sin, repentant, and asking God. Feed me in the worship this morning. Yeah, I know I haven't merited it. I, I know I'm a sinner. But with a repentant heart, asking for faith and repentance, come and pursue God in worship. It's just a reminder for us not to take our gatherings lightly as if it's real optional for us to be here, if it works out, it's kind of, you know, if something else is on the schedule, I'll do that. If not, worship is where we gather and the Lord feeds our souls and strengthens us to walk the race that is set before us. It is where we come to be fed. It is where He takes broken, hopeless, yearning hearts, and he uses the word, he, he uses the preaching, he uses one another, he uses the singing, and again, begins to unite that heart. Pursuing God in worship, where God's presence dwells with us in a unique way. We, we say this often, Spirit unites us. The promise in Revelation, Jesus Christ walks in the midst of his candlestick, in the midst of his church. Jesus Christ is in the midst of his church at this moment. Uh, everything we're doing happens bare and naked and open before the face of God. And there is a uniqueness to the presence of God that we experience and worship. And finally, our prayer, our pursuit, how we encourage Andrew and Julia's experience God, not necessarily relief. You experience God, not necessarily relief. It's not that joy only comes when you get through the heartache or the trouble. Or that God proves that he's close to you when everything else that's bad is far from you. But it's experiencing God in the midst of the suffering. It's in suffering, I've used this analogy before, that I think you are the most sensitive to the Lord's working in your life. It would be like, you know, 
let's say you're alone up here at the church building, you leave at 12 noon on a sunny day, and you walk down to Panera. It's just, you know, you're kind of going about, you're not really noticing much that's going on. Now say you're up here at the church, 10 o'clock at night, for some weird reason, we're screening a horror movie. (laughs) You watch this, like, creepy horror movie, or the crime blog, whoever it was that was talking about that the other day. You get yourself kind of freaked out. Now you're by yourself, and it's like, okay, we're locking up the building. It's midnight. You just watched this movie, Walk Down to Panera Bread. Your senses are just slightly heightened at that point. You know, before with a sound that you didn't hear, now it's, you know, I think suffering kind of works like that in our lives, where we sort of just going through life, and we're not thinking of God protecting us through the night, that he doesn't sleep, and we do sleep, and, and we're not thinking about all his provisions, and we're not that sensitive to how his spirit is, is working in us, and then tragedy hits, and you realize, I need the Lord for every moment suddenly you become very aware and very sensitive to how the Spirit is leading and working and moving. And the Lord can take suffering that you then experience God in a renewed way where faith is built. You're able to minister to others out of that experience of God being near. And that doesn't necessarily mean that you experience great relief from the pain and the sorrow. Look what, the psalm, look what the psalmist says here as we close in verses 1 and 2 as he, as he starts. As a deer pants for flowing streams, so pants my soul for you, O God. My soul thirsts for God, for the living God. When shall I come and appear before God? What he thirsts for, what he longs for, isn't necessarily get me out of this trouble. It is I need to know my God is with me right now. I need the word. I need to drink deeply from it. I need to experience my God in this moment. We're walking through a dark valley of the shadow of death right now as a church family. Let's respond love and mercy and kindness for as long as it needs to be there for these families who are experiencing this tragedy right now. Let us know and hope in the midst of it to preach to ourselves, God is sovereign. As Pastor Adam prayed, in the flood, he is sovereign. There is purpose, there is meaning, there is reason behind it all. You might not understand and know it all, but knowing God is sovereign gives it that purpose and that meaning that he is our salvation. Let's be in prayer, hopeful prayer for them. Let's pray that we all would experience our God in the midst of this. Yes, relief. It's not wrong to pray for relief. We ask for it. It's not wrong to pray for protection. We ask for that. But more than that, that we would have our God and know him. I'm going to take just a moment and pray, pray specifically for these families. To close that, I'll invite the worship team up. And then I just encourage you, as we close, if you want to, you do what you want, but if you want to remain there for a little bit in your seat praying or get with someone and pray, you're welcome to do that. 
that we would be equipped to serve these families in this difficult hour. And I would just remind you, remember the fund that we'll put together to kind of help some of the expenses and decisions, things that need to be made at such a hard time, that hopefully we can be a blessing and relief in a small way in that way. Let's pray. <clears throat> Lord, we pray that you would give us a united heart. We know in our own weakness, we know in our own just daily life, often we, it's hard for us to connect your goodness with the providence that we recognize in our lives. So I pray that you would do that. Lord, we lift up Steve and the Matsumoto family before you. Lord, I pray that you would grant grace in the midst of sorrow. I pray for Steve that he would be able to process these things, to grieve, to hope in you through it. Lord, as he's going to be needed on, needed to be there for his parents through this as well, that you would give him strength and endurance for that. You'd work out details and everything for him getting back home, and Lord, that you would just oversee in that. Lord, we pray for Andrew and for Julie. Lord, that you would grant a peace that we wouldn't understand how it would come, and yet you promise you can grant it that they would experience hope, that they would fight for joy in the midst of this terrible suffering, that we would be a church body that continues to surround them in love, is there for them, doesn't just react and then move on two days later, but we'd remain as long as we need to remain with them in this moment. We look forward to them being back with us for worship, to experience the word, to... Unite with us in that way again. Invite the worship team if they come back up at this time. In just a moment, they'll have you stand and we'll respond together. <clears throat>